And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, lots of folks have two jobs, but none quite like Raphael Warnock's. On most weekdays, he's patrolling the halls of Congress as the senior senator from the state of Georgia. But he's also the senior pastor of the storied Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, preaching from the same pulpit that his idol, his North Star, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once graced. I sat down with Senator Warnock in Washington last week to talk about his extraordinary journey from the housing projects of Savannah to these lofty places and how he's using his platform to continue the social justice mission of Dr. King. Here's that conversation. Senator Warnock, I'm so glad to see you. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. Thank you. Great to be here with you. You know, I was thinking when I woke up this morning, I was thinking about having this conversation. In the last couple of weeks, I I talked to Jeff Zeleny, who's a colleague of mine at CNN. And Jeff, he grew up on a farm in Nebraska, overcame this withering stutter to become one of the leading broadcast journalists in America, lost his dad in a farm accident. And then the following week, I talked to Stephanie Murphy, who you may know is a member of the House, who was a, a refugee from Vietnam and was hmm. picked, scooped up by the U.S. Navy and grew up in a trailer park in Virginia and wound up working at the Pentagon, actually doing the Navy budget and uh, became a United States congresswoman. And I thought, these are great American stories. Yeah. These are threads of the great American tapestry, and you're a great American story. So I'm really eager to talk about that. We can get to the politics later. Sure. But talk to me about about your family, not just Jonathan and Verlene, but the you must have traced your family back to its beginnings in the States. Well, thank you so very much. And look, this is what we love about America is is that there is this path to possibility. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. I, I am an iteration of of the American dream and the American story. My father uh, was a pastor and a small businessman, and his business was literally picking up old junk cars. And um, uh, he still is my greatest hero. Uh, bless his memory. I love, by the way, that you uh, said about them, him that he worked on broken cars on weekdays and worked on broken people that, on Sundays. That's right. That's right. Right. He, I, I saw him. He, you know, he, he didn't have the benefit of all the wonderful schools that I was able to attend because of his hard work. And so he was self-trained, but he was such a wise man, and there was a depth to his preaching that was buoyed by his experience as a black man born in 1917, a man who literally on one occasion had to give up his seat while riding a public bus with his army uniform on. Mm. And yet he never gave in to bitterness. He, he never lost hope in what America was and what it could be. Um, my mother— You said had Lincoln and Kennedy portraits on his wall. A- absolutely. He was a patriot. Yeah. And, and um, I, I think I learned how to say the Pledge of Allegiance in Sunday school mm-hmm. at his church. My mother grew up in Waycross, Georgia. And uh, in the 1950s, uh, she grew up, uh, she was significantly younger than my, my father, and she grew up picking cotton and, and tobacco. And uh, a couple years ago, uh, the octogenarian hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton and somebody else's tobacco helped to pick her son to be a United States senator. Yeah, yeah. And you were born four years, I guess, after the Civil Rights Act was passed. Tell me if I get the math wrong. That's about right. I was born in 1969, a year yes, after Dr. Yeah, King's yeah. death. What, uh, four years after uh, the voting rights law? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is is relevant because in some ways you were you were who the architects of the great society had in mind mm-hmm. uh, and the great anti-poverty programs of the uh, of the 60s that helped you along the way. You you were the beneficiary of these programs. Though Dr. King had died, apparently even as a small child, he was a great influence on you. Very much so. Uh, as you point out, I, I was born, you know, a year after Dr. King's death. And so I, I didn't live through the civil rights period. Uh, I grew up in the South, Savannah, Georgia, but I, I never drank from a colored water fountain. I never sat on the back of a bus because of race. 
And I'm the blessed beneficiary of the foot soldiers of that movement. Dr. King was great, and part of his greatness was that he recognized the greatness of ordinary people. He used to talk about uh, the ground crew. One day in, in the midst of his many travels, he was on an airplane, and he looked out and he saw the ground crew getting things ready for the flight to take off. And he always reminded folks that it's not just about the pilot. It's about the people you don't see who make flight possible. And um, it's really ordinary Americans, red, yellow, brown, black, and white during the movement and in other periods of our country's history that kept pushing the country forward, that makes somebody like me possible. And uh, as a result, I grew up— Well, let me me just stop you for a second because one thing that sort of— I was sort of a geeky kid, and I was, you know, moved by JFK when I was five years old, and that was the beginning of everything. You were reciting (laughs) Martin Luther King speeches and sermons, like as a as a five and six year old, to explain that because I think a lot of people that would blow a lot of people's mind. Well, my dad was a preacher, Mm -hmm. and um, and my mom is a pastor. And so, Which point out you were the youngest of eleven. I'm, I'm uh, number eleven out of twelve kids. I'm the youngest son. Mm-hmm. There are seven boys in the family. Uh-huh. So faith and talk about faith and the meaning of faith in everyday life was part of my household. But Dr. King absolutely captured my imagination as Why? a kid. There was something about the power of his voice and uh, the way in which he used his faith to encourage others to stand up for themselves and never to lose hope. Uh, the ability to, to speak in such a way that, that people literally laid their bodies on the line in hopes of, of what could be. And um, uh, the older I got, the more I studied Dr. King, there's a kind of integrity through his public ministry. Uh, he was a flawed, imperfect human being like all of us. But part of what inspires me to this day is that he, he stood on the side of what he felt was right simply because it was right, knowing that he might lose the short-term battles here or there, but he kept his mind and his, his eye uh, on the prize. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly we could use that kind of integrity, that kind of uh, commitment uh, in our well, public and, and in our politics right now, and, and, and that kind of courage, absolutely. Yeah. I know you, you were preaching from the pulpit when you were like 11 years old. Your nickname was Rev <laughs> when you were a kid, so that gives you a sense of uh, of your profile. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, like I said, my, my my mom and dad were Pentecostal preachers, so there's a lot of passion in those churches, a lot of energy. And um, as I talk about in, in, in my memoir, I, I detect you've read it. Yeah. <laughs> no way out of no way. Um, I, one day when I was six years old, I was— in the room, literally just preaching with the passion <laughs> and the zeal of those preachers I saw on television and heard on the radio and sometimes in my church, and the sweat was pouring. My mom, after a while, she sent one of my brothers in and said, hey, go and go and get uh, Ray, as they called me. You know, I think he's—we <laughs> might need to rescue him. <laughs> so so I was on this path to ministry early on. And, you, you know, your dad uh, said something about pastoring. And he said, and social activism, and he said, we can't be so heavenly bound that we're, we're no earthly good. And what's striking about your trajectory is you really followed the sort of social justice path in, in your ministry. You went to Morehouse College where, uh, where Dr. King— That's why I went. Dr. King posthumously recruited me uh-huh. to Morehouse College. I just wanted to be on the campus— Mm-hmm. Where, where that inspired him. I'd read about Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was president of Morehouse mm-hmm. when he was there. There's this whole black gospel, social gospel tradition uh, that Morehouse is a part of. And the more I read about the civil rights movement, the more I learned about the ministers around Dr. King, and many of them were Morehouse men. Yeah. And so I just wanted to be in this place. I wanted to attend the school Dr. King attended. I did not know I'd end up pastoring the church that he led. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that because it's it's an extraordinary thing. By the way, I did a podcast some months ago with Walter Massey, who yeah. is a past president of Morehouse College. Just a spectacular and fascinating world class scientist. Yeah, yeah, just a just yeah. a incredible guy. But while you were at Morehouse, you went and you interned at the Sixth Street. 
Baptist Church in Birmingham, which has a, a long tradition. Yeah, I was, I was at Sixth Avenue Baptist Church. The pastor at the time was John Porter, and he, as a young college student and seminarian, had been Dr. King's pulpit assistant at uh, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery before uh, the movement took off. Yeah, before that's Dr. where the King, bus boycott began. Right, but yeah. before that fateful day when Dr. King gave that first speech during the boycott at the Holt Street Baptist Church, John Porter uh, was the a young assistant who just wanted to get some experience because he knew he wanted to go to seminary. And then all of those decades later, Dr. King's mentee became my mentor. And so I've been blessed with wonderful mentors and folks who encouraged me along the way. And you went up to New York to the Union Union Theological Seminary, uh, which has its own sort of history of kind of social activism. Absolutely. Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr. Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich. Yeah. James Cone. Mm-hmm. The folks who, who centered their words and ministry around liberation theology, not just in the United States, but in Latin America and other places. Uh, these currents that that focus on centering marginalized people shaped my ministry uh, at Ebenezer, got me engaged in the kinds of fights that I've been engaged in, which uh, eventuated in me running for office. Yeah, well, one of the influences there was uh, the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And I remember this because I grew up in New York. So I remember Adam Clayton Powell, who was one of the most powerful members, the the most powerful black man in America in some ways. A towering figure. And uh, he, as you are doing now, he pastored on Sundays and he legislated on weekdays and uh, was was quite a force. And then Calvin Butts, who was there when you were there, also quite a force in the community. How much did that influence you? Yeah, so Dr. King inspired me, but I was born after his death. And these pastors that you hear me talking about, they gave me an example of what public ministry would look like in a post-civil rights era or or during my own lifetime. So Calvin Butts uh, was a fearless activist when I got uh, to New York in the early 90s. I was a seminary student, and so I spent the weekdays in the classroom, but Abyssinian Baptist Church and Harlem and a ministry that focused on challenging then the tobacco companies that were particularly preying uh, on the, preying on, yeah, on, on yeah, those communities. Yeah. And Dr. Butts' activism, climbing up on billboards and painting over them in order yes. to draw attention to the issue. It gave me an example of how your ministry can come alive outside of the walls of the church. And uh, I think I've tried to bring the spirit of that to my ministry. Yeah, well, you, and you took it to Baltimore, which was, I think, your next posting in a major church there. 2005, you get the call to come and pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is hallowed ground in the civil rights movement. Uh, that's where Dr. King preached from and was his spiritual base and very much the the kind of focus of the world watched what happened at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Tell me what it was like when you got that opportunity. Wow. Uh, 18 years later, it's still deeply humbling to me that uh, because in the Baptist Church, there's no bishop that sends you to the church. The congregation elected me. Yeah. And... um, when I found out I was a finalist, I, I was uh, happy about that because I, I knew that at the bare minimum, I'd get to preach from that pulpit one time. So did you have to <laughs> preach and they had to judge That's you right. as a preacher? That's right. Wow. That's right. With Dr. King's sister like, sitting right in front of me, the late— Like America's Christine Got Talent. <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, Baptist listeners, they, they're, they're listening. They say, can we listen to this guy every Sunday? <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and they actually brought in voting machines for my election. And um, so I was overwhelmingly uh, selected by the church. That's amazing. In 2005 and— and it's been a wonderful journey ever since. I mean, I got involved with uh, issues around voting rights, registering people to vote. When um, President Obama was pushing forward the Affordable Care Act uh, and pushing for Medicaid expansion, um, I used my time on Sunday morning to talk about 
the fact that every Sunday I, I preach in memory of someone who spent a lot of his ministry healing the sick. How could we not expand Medicaid in Georgia? Which you're still you're still fighting that battle today. Georgia is one of ten states that did, that did not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So right. there are real tangible implications for Georgians of that decision. Yeah, sadly, we have some six hundred and forty thousand Georgians in the Medicaid gap. And you know, when you think about David, the folks especially who who like to moralize about the ethics of work and a work ethic. And I believe in work ethic. Mm -hmm. You read my book. My dad was a hardworking man yeah. and poured that ethic into me. But the, the, the sad irony is that when you talk about the people in the gap that would be covered by Medicaid expansion, it's largely the working poor. Exactly. exactly These yeah. people who work every day. Yeah. These are folks who make our lives better. They're the ground crew. Yeah. And yet Georgia is one of only 10 states that's still digging in its heels fighting the battles, the political battles of a decade ago. Uh, earlier this week, I was down at the state legislature yeah, trying to encourage that. lawmakers to to finally do the right thing. And um, uh, I mean, it doesn't, it, 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 there's from just from a, if you, even if you set aside the humanity of it, these are dollars that should be going to Georgia that Georgia's not getting. That's right. As you know, you know a little something about this law. Yeah. Uh, the federal government would cover 90% of the costs. And because I got elected, here's what we were able to do. Senator Ossoff and I secured about $1.2 billion for Georgia in extra incentives if they just expand Medicaid, you you could think of it as a signing bonus. So so we've removed every barrier, and I'm I'm still hopeful that at the end of the day, uh, Georgia will do what North Carolina recently did, mm -hmm. what Kentucky did, what what states blue and red. There are only ten holdouts at this point. Yeah. Imagine having Social Security in forty states, yeah, or or Medicare in forty states. We it's it's unimaginable, and uh, somehow the politicians have got to stop asking, well, what will happen to me if I if I do the right thing? And and they need to center the people. I, I, I can tell you, Senator, that the night the Affordable Care Act passed the House, I went into my office at the White House and I wept. And I wept not because it was a political victory for President Obama. I wept because I had I had a child with a chronic illness and I almost went bankrupt mm. when I was a young newspaper reporter because they wouldn't cover the things that she needed. And in the years since, I've met so many people who've come up to me in tears talking about what the Affordable Care Act meant to them. And I think the country is now caught up with the value of it. I hope the Georgia legislature does as well. I want to ask you one thing that I should have gone back and asked you. Your dad was still living when you were named pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Tell me about that, about calling him and telling him, I got this pulpit. It was a truly special moment. It was Father's Day uh -huh. uh, when the congregation actually held a vote, and they called me and to say that I was the new pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And uh, I called my father, who was born in 1917 in uh, rural Georgia, and um I said, Happy Father's Day, and, and uh, he said, Thank you. And I said, I've got some news for you. I was just elected pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, spiritual home of Martin Luther King, Jr. And uh, he was just so very, very proud. He didn't say a whole lot on, on the phone. Uh, I think he was just overwhelmed by the thought of it all. But um, my sister said that uh, when he got off the phone, he just sat and wept. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. After the Civil Rights Act passed and after the Voting Rights Act passed, there was a tremendous backlash, particularly in the South. It was something Lyndon Johnson predicted. You register a lot of voters, and I know you had an interest in the election of uh, of President Obama. You said something like Ebenezer's prayers have been answered when he was elected. We are in a different period now. I mean, I think about it a lot. We, you know, I think about the hopefulness of two thousand and eight. The inauguration of 2009, you undoubtedly were there. Remember, there were conversations about post-racial America. Yes. Yeah, which I think, you know, we among ourselves had conversations. No one knew better than Barack Obama that it isn't that easy. Sure. That it was never – that progress never comes in two steps forward and two steps forward and two steps forward. And I'm wondering whether you believe that this period that we're in – and that the you know the Tea Party movement and the MAGA movement and so on uh, reflect a backlash to the election of the first African American president, at well, least in part. Well, you know the the backlash against the civil rights movement started happening not after Dr. King's death, but in the last two years of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the polling. In 1967 and 68, Dr. King was not viewed favorably. I, I mention that because it's easy to forget all these years later because he's been lionized. canonized yeah. and lionized. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is certainly, you cannot account for the kind of vitriol we've seen uh, without, you can't account for it fully without reference to uh, the incredible and historic election of, of Barack Obama. But I think that there there have always been demagogues in our country who have played to certain racial resentments, uh, people's anxiety, uh, often the anxiety of, of poor working class folks who who rightly see very often the disconnect between power and the place where they live there at the place where they live. And there are always demagogues who who are conveniently looking at, you know, make use of, of some scapegoat, whether it's black people. In the United States, or or uh, immigrants, we're seeing we're seeing that movie, that sad movie, play out time and time again. People who have no vision, traffic and division. They don't have a plan. They don't know how to lead us, so they're trying to divide us. And I think that um, the moral test of this moment is the question of whether or not we, as a nation, will give in to the demagogues, or will we embrace. Um, the high ideals of our country, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I, I feel, in, in a real sense, I'm living at the intersection of that important moral decision. I was elected the first African-American senator, John Ossoff, the first Jewish senator. From Georgia, yeah. In one fell swoop uh, from the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. John Ossoff and I, an African-American and a Jew, elected from Georgia on January 5th. I was feeling really good about what we had achieved. But the very next day, January 6th, we saw the most violent insurrection against our capital, uh, most violent attack on our capital we've seen since the War of 1812, fueled by the big lie. And behind that was the unspoken part. Really what was being said is that this new emerging and diverse electorate doesn't get to decide the future of the country. And so I think in a real sense, we're living at that nexus between the hopes and the promise of January 5th, where a kid who grew up in public housing 
uh, the first college graduate in his family can become a United States senator, and the fears of January 6th. In a real sense, this, is elect- this election is about which direction are we going to go. You must hear a lot of this. So you travel around the state of Georgia. You travel to rural areas, as you know, obviously. You know, what's interesting to me is you're, you're a, a minister. You, you, you know, you, you preach the gospel, and you go to places where people preach the gospel, but it's a very different message. Uh, and tell me, A, first of all, do you think there was uh, any more acceptance of you because you, you are a minister? And B, talk to me about that white evangelical movement that has become sort of the core of MAGA and the core of some of that backlash. Well, there's no question that you don't get a president, Donald Trump, without Christian America. And I think at some point, we're going to have to come to terms with that. We're going to have to look deep into our soul uh, and think about the implications of that. Very often when, when I hear the loudest Christian voices in our country, I sometimes feel like Jesus must be the first and biggest victim of identity theft because this hateful rhetoric this impugning of the character of poor people and marginalized people is a far cry from the Jesus who said, I came to preach good news to the poor. And so what I've tried to do is to be continually inspired by King, but not only him, by Fannie Lou Hamer, by Viola Luisa, a white woman who mm-hmm. lost her life standing up, by Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, two Jews and an African-American. I, I've tried to use my faith. Kill, killed in the civil kill, rights killed, movement. Killed fighting for, mm-hmm. for what's right, martyrs of the movement. And um, I have tried to use my faith as a bridge rather than a weapon. And this sounds corny, but I, I am deeply honored to represent the people of Georgia in the United States Senate, that they elected a pastor, I think, uh, is its own message. And I often say to people, I'm, I'm not a senator who used to be a pastor. I'm a pastor in the Senate. In fact, I still lead my church. Yeah. And I preach there most Sundays. Yeah. I, I meant to ask you about that because I was thinking, boy, that's tough. Those are two demanding jobs. And then I thought of Dr. King, who preached on Sundays and essentially through the Southern, Southern Christian, Christian Leadership, Leadership Conference, Conference sort of uh, was the, the kind of un official head of the entire civil rights movement. So he had two pretty big jobs. Yeah, he was he time. was co-pastor of the church. Mm-hmm. So his dad actually was the pastor and he was co-pastor. Mm-hmm. I have a somewhat different model. I'm 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 the senior pastor of the church. I have a very effective executive pastor and team yeah. that handles day-to-day operations, but you're right. I I have two big jobs and two small children. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Do the jobs reinforce each other? I mean, do, oh, absolutely. do you think you're a better senator because of your there's, pastoring, and there, are you a better pastor because of your work in the Senate? There, there, there's no question that I'm a better senator because I, I, I'm a pastor. Uh, you take something like my work around capping the cost of insulin, and folks are, why are you so passionate about that? I'm glad we were able to get that done for seniors. I'm trying now to get that $35 cap for everybody because mm-hmm. insulin shouldn't be expensive. But I spent decades doing hospital visitations. I've been there when um, um, the diabetes has gotten out of control and someone has to go on kidney dialysis or get an amputation. I've been there with the families. And um, um, part of what I've learned as a pastor is that, in a sense, there's nothing more important than the ministry of presence. While you're working on people's problems, very often there's no simple answer uh, but while you're working on it, people need to know that you're there, that that you're walking with them even as you're working for them. And I've tried to bring that spirit to the Senate. And by the same token, as I'm able to look uh, more deeply and spend a lot of time on these public policy issues, I think it's also made me a better pastor. I want to ask you, uh, talking about your social justice ministry, criminal justice reform has been a piece of that, a big piece of that. and. You have a really personal motivation 
for this. It, that goes beyond your pastoring to the community and your own family. Sure. And I want you to talk about your brother, Keith, who I guess you shared a room with when you were yeah. growing up. Yeah, there were, there were seven boys in my family. I'm the youngest. And the my brother, who's just above me, about five years older than me, was convicted in 1997 uh, of a drug-related offense. He was sentenced to life in prison, life in prison, federal prison. And when they say that, that means that's your physical life without the possibility of parole. Now, you hear that sentence and you would automatically ask me, well, well, who did he kill? How many people died? What happened here? And uh, while my brother's crimes were serious, uh, this was a nonviolent drug-related offense in which no one died. No one was physically hurt. As far as I can tell, no drugs even hit the streets uh, because this was a kind of sting operation. And um, again, his crimes were serious, but for that, I he guess was he was a police officer and in his off time, he so, was, was providing security. Yeah, a lot for, of, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there was the color of, of public corruption as well. But again, a 33 year old police officer, veteran in the armed forces, had served in uh, the first, uh, uh, what was it, Desert Storm mm-hmm. War. First-time offender, obviously, uh, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I, I think it brings into sharp focus the excesses of our criminal justice system over the last 40 or so years and how it is that the United States of America, the land of the free, is by far the mass incarceration capital of the world. How much progress have we made? Not enough. And it's something that I continue to work on. I've worked on it for years as a pastor. We started an ending mass incarceration campaign at Ebenezer. We have partners who are working with us. Uh, there's a, uh, the local uh, synagogue, uh, the temple uh, in Atlanta. They're one of our partners. We've got uh, dozens of churches all across the country that are working with us. And it's, it's an issue that I'm addressing now in the United States Senate. We should, I don't know if you said this. We, we should point out your brother was released. He spent 22 years in prison. And you must have gone down and visited him during well, that period. Oh, I've, I've visited him many times uh, in prison over the years. He was finally released, ironically, in, uh, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the pandemic created the conditions under which we were forced to make some decisions as a country about who actually has to be here. And those folks were released. My brother was one of them. So he's home, but to this day, uh, for that crime committed all those years ago, he's still confined while at home. He is under the control of the state, and he's very limited in terms of what he's able to do. It wasn't a new idea when you decided to run for the United States Senate. You had thought about running for office before. There were a couple of Senate races that you contemplated. And I think you wrote that working years earlier at Abyss- Abyssinian Baptist Church and learning about the Adam Clayton Powell legacy, you thought maybe I could run for Congress someday. Tell me about the decision to run. And did you know what you were getting yourself into? <laughs> I don't know if you can completely know. But I, I was a, a youth pastor and then assistant pastor at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And in an earlier era, uh, the great Adam Clayton Powell Jr. had been pastor of that church and so here was a model of a local pastor who was the congressperson representing that district. And then there have been other examples. I think of Bill Gray down in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. who at one point was arguably the most powerful black person in office. He was chair of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, went home every uh, weekend, preached at his church in Philadelphia. So there have been other examples. Mm-hmm. And so I-, I think the first sense that that might be something that I might do at some point cross my mind while I was at Abyssinian. And of course, there were a lot of old timers there who who had, who had lived during the time of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And I was regaled by their stories. And mm-hmm. uh, But it was not an obsession. It was just a question mark. An idea. You know, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about you and the legacy of King. And I was wondering, would he have run? Do you think in a different time that he would have contemplated running for public office? I mean, it's it's impossible to know. But he he resisted even endorsing anyone. Generally, he kind of stayed out of electoral politics. But the folks around him, 
many of them yeah, ran for well, office. Andrew Young. You think of Andrew Young, yes. who, who became the first black member of Congress from Georgia since Reconstruction. Yeah. You know, we were joking before we started that uh, when uh, my old boss and friend, President Obama, encountered you, I think in 2013, <laughs> and there was some talk that you might run and yeah. uh, for office then, he was a little taken aback. What did he say to you? Yeah, in 2014, I was there was a, an open Senate seat in Georgia, and I thought about it for, for a little while. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about running for office. And he said, you sure you want to do that? And he, he said, you got a pretty good gig over there at Ebenezer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think it was his way of saying, you, you know, just, just make sure this is something you really want to do. And well, so I took a few more years to think about it. <laughs> well, he, uh, he, he was speaking, of course, from experience. Sure. And he knew— how brutal this can be. And you experienced some of that when you ran for the Senate. Your divorce became an issue. Some allegations that were unproven kind of became part of the the race uh, involving you and your ex-wife. Uh, I mean, it was ugly. Politics is, is a contact sport, is, and too often just the kind of thing that you're talking about causes a lot of good people not to run. You know, look, if given what I already do as a pastor, if I had any questions about my integrity, the depth of my commitment to certain values, I never would have gotten involved in this. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I got involved in, in running because I wanted a chance to make the world better, to make the country better, uh, not only for my children, but for other children. And I can tell you that the toughest part of this job is being away from uh, my precious two little children uh, as often as I am. I've got a seven-year-old daughter, a five-year-old son, and um, the other ones who keep me grounded, uh, even as I uh, am honored, really, to co-parent them with their mother. Probably a blessing that they were so young when you were going through that race, because they probably had no idea about all the ugliness that was flying and the charges going back and forth. That's the blessed thing about being a, a child. You've got, your world is smaller than that. Yeah, I do my best to shield them from the ugliness of politics. And uh, but, you know, I don't know how good a job I'm doing because my my seven year old daughter is already saying she wants to be a United States senator. Is that right? <laughs> well, tell her you're you've got this covered for a few years, so she should probably continue. In Listen, school. if if I know my daughter, I better keep my act together because she she may challenge me. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You know, when you won, you won in part because you galvanized a lot of voters in the black community. And I want to talk to you about where we are today, because I look at polling uh, that's one of my uh, bad habits that I can't break. And uh, one you should t- try; it's bad for your health. No, I know. No, no. My <laughs> wife tells me that all the time. But one of the one of the things that is noteworthy is that in poll after poll after poll, the president uh, is not drawing the kind of support among African American voters that he drew. Four years ago that, you know, you see Donald Trump with, you know, 20, 21, 22 percent of the vote. And a lot of that is reflected in younger uh, African-American voters and particularly younger African-American men. men. And I I was wondering if you had any idea why that is. You know, I think what's happening in our country right now is larger than any single candidate, even the president. And I don't, I don't know that we've— We'll take him out of it, but what is the disillusionment? Well, what, what I'm, I'm saying that the country is going through what I call a kind of low-grade fever. Three years of a pandemic, 
where a million Americans, I don't think we think about it, mm. a million, think about the trauma of 9-11 when we, when we, you know, we lost, what, 4,000 people or less than 4,000, way too many. But somewhere sitting around tables at Thanksgiving and other places, there are a million You must have seats. presided over some funeral. Absolutely, I did. I remember a few in, in particular. I remember a young coach who raised his twin daughters in, in my church. And as a young man, he lost his life in the early days of the pandemic. But the collective trauma of all of that, the loss of lives and livelihoods, and all of that on the heels of 20 years of war. I think it will be years from now, David, before we take stock mm -hmm. of what has happened to us. No, I think we have a post, po post the, war, the war certainly is a piece of it. We've gone through a lot of different yeah. traumas and a post-pandemic PTSD. Right. But in the, in the midst of that— But talk to me about these young black people and particularly young black men. Well, look, the polls are the polls, and I think they'll go up and down between now and November. So you don't see this among—because I hear from other folks, including in Georgia, who people you know and people who are active, concerns about—not based on polls, but their own conversations with young people in the community right now. And I assume that you must have these kinds of conversations yourself. Well, the worst thing you can do as a politician, as, as someone running for office, is is to take— Anything for granted, and I don't think the president's doing that. And we're engaged in the fight. I think, I think, as the election gets closer, it will be very clear that we're faced with a binary choice. And um, I can tell you that when I've been around the president, when I was with the vice president down at Morehouse College a few months ago, those kids were quite excited uh, that she was there. And um, I'm proud of the fact that we've done. $137 billion of student debt relief, for example, that's helped 3.7 million Americans. This we did with our hands behind our backs, with the Republicans suing us. Uh, and so I think we've got to do what I do every Sunday morning, keep telling the gospel story, telling the story of $137 billion of student debt relief, uh, telling the story about the fact that in a real sense, ironically, the choice in this election is about whether women will have a choice after this election. And I think when people take a hard look, if you center the people, you have a chance at getting the public policy right. The voters in Georgia are savvy. Um, if you looked at the polls in my race early on uh, and you just judged the outcome based on the polls, I wouldn't be sitting here, but I am. And uh, I'm proud of the work that we've been able to do over the last few years. One of the mistakes I think that uh you can make in politics. And I think the president may be guilty of this, or it was last fall. It's very hard to jawbone people into feeling something different than they're feeling. Uh, you look at these economic statistics, and they're pretty impressive uh, when you consider where we were three years ago. And yet, and I think it has to do with the thing that you talked about, this low-grade fever, there is still a sense that things are going badly and people are, you know, and, you know, there are interest rate issues and rent issues and uh, all, all of that. Uh, so there is, there are things that are real that are irritating people, but I think there is this hangover. And I, I wonder whether, you know, just reciting statistics is going to change the way people feel about their lives. Well, the point that, that I was making, which is that at the end of the day, elections are about choices. Yes, I hear you. And so the the people of Georgia, the people of our country, have a choice to make. And if the nominees are whom we presume them to be, uh, ironically, the choice in this election could not be more stark. I'll let you and you know I mean you you're you're much more able as 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 a self-proclaimed uh, political hack. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. To, to I can't to, escape to, it. It's, to think it's about, the truth. Think about these things in in political terms, but I I honestly believe as as a pastor uh, who got in this work because of my lifelong commitment to service, I believe that if you center the people rather than the politics. Maybe not in the way you want them to or when you want them to. The people will feel it. Mm -hmm. People know a phony when they spot one. Uh, I, think, I think that in the way in which you talked about your own pain around mm -hmm. your daughter, mm -hmm. 
and how that translated in your work around healthcare. I think that when you think about Joe Biden, a man who has seen much pain and trauma and grief in his own life, I think he brings that that spirit uh, to his work. And um, the contrast couldn't be more stark. And I, I worry, I worry when we, look, I, I know the politics matter, but I do worry when we focus solely on that. Right now, in this moment, we've got folks who are saying we're not going to do anything on this border deal because it might help. Yeah. Joe no, I want to ask about that. Or we're not going to do anything on the child expanded, the expanded child tax credit because it might help the president. Are you kidding me? So, so here are folks who are, so, who are saying the quiet part out loud. They are clearly so focused on the next election that they're not thinking about the next generation. I think the voters will see through that. I will ask you about that. I want to ask you about bipartisanship because it's something that you've that you stressed when you were running for re-election. And I want to ask you about how much is possible under these circumstances. But on one other issue relative to the black community and younger African Americans that I wanted to ask you about. I remember the civil rights movement. I, I'm a, a couple of years older than you, and I remember as a child. And one of the things I'm Jewish. One of the things that we took pride in in our home was the fact that the Jewish community was deeply invested in the civil rights movement. You mentioned uh, Schwerner Cheney, Cheney who, yeah. who 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 were murdered trying to fight for voting rights, yeah. but. There is a rift that's grown up over time, and now we have this issue of the war in the Middle East, and that has really been a source of tension between younger voters generally and younger voters of color and uh, the administration because the president has taken a strong position of support for Israel, not necessarily the way they've prosecuted the war, but their right to defend themselves. I know you've been a strong supporter of Israel as well. Tell me how you're navigating this issue and whether you have concerns, uh, whether you share concerns with some of these young people who are disillusioned. Well, the issue is complicated, obviously. And if it were simple, it would have been resolved long before now. Again, for me, my North Star is to center people's humanity. And we can't forget that October 7th, represented the single deadliest year for Jewish people since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I recall with horror every time I I think about uh, what happened that day, about the use of rape as a weapon of war, the attacks on on seniors and on babies and children. Um, And we can't forget about that. Um, At the same time, we can't forget about Palestinian people who, in the case of Gaza, were already living in a hellish situation, uh, made worse by this this awful tragedy, visited upon them in a real sense by Hamas, Mm -hmm. a terrorist organization committed to the destruction of of Israel and and Jewish people. And um, I I think you can hold those two things. You can, and I think that's something that's— I mean, I weep when I see— I'm the son of a Jewish refugee from yeah. Eastern Europe, and my father's home was blown up, and he grew up watching people killed all around him. So I have obviously very strong feelings about what happened on that day and the massacre that Hamas engaged in. That said, it doesn't stop me from weeping when I see these Palestinian children, innocent children. Uh, we, we weep for those children. We weep, we weep for the hostages yeah. who, you know, some of whom are children. And So so what do you tell these young people? Because I have no doubt that somewhere in the last several months, you've been confronted by young people who have concerns, not just young people, but people who have concerns. You come out of the progressive community. Uh, what do you say to them? Well, you know, re- recently I, I actually preached a sermon about this first at uh, a Jewish temple on the Friday night before King Day and then at my own church. And it was simply entitled, uh, I Sat Where They Sat. And it's taken from a passage from the book of Ezekiel, where the prophet says that he went down where the exiles were uh, in Tel Aviv uh, next to the river Kebar. And he said, I sat where they sat. Before he spoke, he just sat 
among the people. And I, that whole idea of sitting where other people sit, it, as simple as it sounds for me, that's the North mm-hmm. Star for how we get to a place other than where we are right now. What does it mean to look at the world through the eyes of a people, a Jewish people, who have never felt safe anywhere in the world, uh, who carry in their bones not only the story of the Holocaust, but literally hundreds of years of sometimes feeling safe for a little while, and then here we go again. And what, what, is it, what does it mean to sit where Palestinian children sit and their mothers and fathers, who I, I think about this as a parent, I know how uh, concerned I can get when my children uh, have strep throat. Mm-hmm. But imagine navigating that with bombs dropping all mm-hmm. around you. I, I think not only for that situation, but, but for our politics here in this country, we have somehow got to understand that the future of our own children is inextricably connected to the future of other people's children. And if we could look at the world through, through the eyes of parents who may be viewed as being on the other side, will that solve the problem overnight? No, but it gives us a path in thinking about the policies that are put in front of us. And that's how, that's how I approach my work. So as a, as a, as a senator, what do you think the United States should do relative to this war now that has dragged on? I, I mean, I, I see the president and the secretary of state and others trying to put some pressure on the Israelis to rethink some of this and perhaps to bring a pa- at least a pause to the war. But uh, how, how much more should they be doing to make clear that we need change? We should be doing everything we can to save lives, and uh, it's the reason why I've. I've are, been, are you? Sa- let me. Inter- and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sure. Just worried about time. But how do you? I mean, what's your assessment of Prime Minister Netanyahu and the way he's prosecuting this war? His rejection of a two-state solution, which is central to the. It, that's deeply worrisome. For me, a two-state solution is the only path to a Jewish democratic state. Yes. That. Uh, is, embraces sustain, the freedoms yeah. and values mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. we hold as Americans, and that that lives in peace, uh, but you know, next to its, its Arab na- uh, its Arab na- neighbors. And I was deeply concerned by the outright, full throated rejection. Not that it was a change in policy. Now it's been saying this for years. Yes, uh, but the bellicose way I experienced in which, it when I was in the administration. Yeah, the bellicose way in which he said it in recent days is deeply concerning. And um, I think that we have to remain true to our values. You talked about bipartisanship, and you talked about the fact that the president has agreed, apparently in principle, to a proposal that your colleagues have worked on, Republican and Democrat, and I guess independent in the Senate, uh, that uh, would probably be the most uh, draconian uh, immigration uh, law in in. In decades, uh, he's, it's a recognition that there's a real emergency at the border that has to be addressed. And as you know, it's now, you know, in cities across the country, there's strong feeling about it. Um, and the Republicans in the House have summarily rejected it after, after saying that there's an emergency and we have to deal with it. That doesn't look like, on the one hand, what you've done, what the Senate apparently is trying to do looks like an exercise in bipartisanship. The House killing it doesn't hold out much hope for governance on a bipartisan basis. I think people should ask themselves, why did they come here in the first place? Like, I, I, I came here to try to make people's lives better and to make sure that we stand up for American uh, security in the world, that our people are safe. And um, this situation in Ukraine is very serious. The issue at the border is a real crisis. And we had Republicans tie the, the issues around immigration and the border, which is one of the most fraught areas in, in American politics, to Ukraine because they said it was that important. And said, well, we won't move on, on Ukraine uh, which I see as a it's such a critical we're national a, security yeah. issue, and we're at a critical juncture as well. And then, and then we we manage. Look, you've got James Langford, whom I know, certainly uh, no no liberal by any stretch of the imagination, 
he puts this together along with his Democratic uh, negotiators and on partners on the other side, and folks who haven't even even seen who have not even seen the bill text, saying it's a no go. Well, not only that, he was censured by the Oklahoma Republican right. Party. Right. I I think that the people at home look at this, and this is what turns people off from politics, because the the central question is what's good for the politicians. We've made politics too often about the politicians. Who's up, who's down, who's in, who's Mm -hmm. out. And I think the people at home are asking who cares, and more importantly, who cares about us. Yeah. um, No, I think the impression that people have, and they're not wrong a lot of the time, is that many decisions are made with the next election in mind. No question. And whether what needs to be done to... Uh, strengthen one's uh, party or oneself vis-a-vis an opponent rather than solving problems, weaponizing problems rather than solving them. And this seems like an example of that. I mean, clearly to... there's some folks who've decided that they'd rather have the issue where the well, board One of them is Donald Trump. Than, than to solve the problem. And um, again, I think this is what leaves people jaded, turned off from politics. And the work that I'm trying to do every single day in myself is to make sure that I don't become that. Because yeah, I want to ask you that. Have you been asked to and have you found yourself having to make decisions that in your heart of hearts you don't feel good about because of the pulls of partisan politics? Look, leadership at, at this level especially means that you're often, often confronted with decisions where there's no ideal answer. So that's, that's what I wrestle with, with issues as complicated, for example, as the one you raised earlier around Israel, Gaza. Well, this immigration issue is, is pretty complicated, and, and too. And the immigration issue. Do you, do you, would you embrace a deal like the one that's been outlined? You must have been briefed somewhat by, uh, by now. I, I think that the only way to get to a, a sustainable solution is a bipartisan path. And I'm heartened <clears throat> by the fact that there are people that I do respect who are at the center of this negotiation. I need to see some more of the, the bill mm-hmm. text. Um, but this idea that we're going to reject it outright because we're focused on the, the implications for the next election, that's what folks are saying. They're saying the quiet part out loud mm-hmm. is deeply disheartening. I interrupted you, though. You you were talking about sort of the thought processes that you go through all the time. You say it's complicated. Yeah, I, I, try, I try really hard to get to the right answer. Mm-hmm. I mean— very, very often, we're we're confronted with with problems where there's no ideal answer. There 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 are going to be pros and cons. There are going to be problems with 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 whatever the answer is. The problem with a functioning democracy in a big pluralistic country is that there's never a perfect answer, and right. there's never an answer that's going to please everyone. And so, sounds like a Baptist church. Pro- <laughs> pro- <laughs> Not that much different, David. <laughs> Progress. Uh, by definition, requires sacrificing something, and the question is: Is the balance right? Is the in balance? Right. Is it the right thing? Mm-hmm. Let me ask you before you go. Your name comes up from time to time in terms of future. I don't expect you to answer this because you're too too smart to do it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, in some ways, you're the profile of the kind of candidate in the Democratic Party who could do well within the party and outside the party. Uh, and so your name comes up all the time when you ask for people for a list of people who might be a national candidate uh, in the future. Would, is that something that you would rule out? You, you asked the question in such a smart way, David. I I'm, hope so. I'm, 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 I know. I don't I'm, expect you to. <laughs> the fact that you recognize that I did tells me that it wasn't smart enough. <laughs> Listen, um, my name has been on the ballot in Georgia five times in the last three years. Uh, and you know the happiest thing about this year for me? Don't have to run. Is that I'm not running. Yeah. Well, here's the good news. There's not another presidential election for four more after this, so. Plenty of time to rest and heal. and You won't stop, will you? No, <laughs> but I have to because we're out of the, time. The pastor's going to say amen. <laughs> How about that? I'll give the benediction. Senator, Reverend, it's really a pleasure to spend time with you, and I hope this is the first of many conversations. Enjoyed it so much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.